0: Just before Nick starts, I just want to say the purpose of this is these are a series of essays, I suppose, from these great minds, which are sort of shaping, <laughs> I wasn't being that sarcastic, actually, uh, which, is sh- which are really shaping why each of these parties are involved and to provoke some further thoughts as we go into the rest of the afternoon and sort of get slightly more granular and specific. So, Nick, take it away. Uh, Well, many thanks, Will. Uh, You're very good at creating over-expectations. I must say, first of all, that I feel a complete fraud introducing this session because I I wouldn't like to claim in any way that we're a leader in the film Uh, in the field of building digital capacity for the arts. I'm not a digital native myself. If you want one of them, we should all be talking to our children. Uh, I'm someone who, when trying to download a complete Mozart opera onto my iPod, managed to end up with all the tracks in alphabetical order. (laughs) A somewhat surreal experience to listen to. All of us in the arts and broadcasting are working our way towards what the digital revolution will mean uh, for what we deliver and most importantly, who we deliver it to. And I think this partnership between the Arts Council and the BBC Academy is an ideal way to approach this. So what I want to do now is to take a step Backwards don't think of this as the beginning think of it as a step before the beginning and look at the whole sea change That's come over the arts themselves in recent years Uh, Treat this as an upbeat as a sort of prelude to Genesis Because it may have the useful result of not concentrating our attention too much on the technology Because in the end this isn't about technology. It's about people It's about audiences and how their wants and needs are shifting radically and how they have a whole new relationship to what we call the arts but they probably don't even call it that anymore. And that's a real challenge to the mindset of our institutions the old top-down model whereby the BBC in the past decided that Schoenberg was good for you and gave you vast swathes of it to improve your lives or the Arts Council in the past of course orientated the taste of the country to match precisely the taste of all the aged great and good on its specialist arts panels this now has to be challenged And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these two institutions aren't changing radically in order to address shifting taste, nor am I suggesting that they're becoming unnecessary, quite the reverse. But it takes time to get that old approach out of our systems and respond to what's actually going on. Ages ago, when I was still at the BBC, I remember seeing, among the swathes of utterly useless research we were expected to consume daily, one key insight that stuck in my mind that what people want has changed significantly from what they wanted at the end of the last century. Back then, you still sensed a thirst for more things, for more glamorous goods, more stuff to own. Now that's shifted, and this was pre-recession, pre-economic crisis, what people really want are great experiences. Things that take them out of themselves and offer a new perspective, sometimes sheer fun, but offer a a deeper, more profound experience as well. Hence the exponential growth of live festivals, big events, flash mob gatherings. And this desire to be an active part of something, a collaborator in the artistic experience, I think underlies everything we're going to talk about. In last year's Brighton Festival I was very struck by the thirst for the immersive artworks of Brian Eno bringing light and music and architecture together in a way that grew crowds willing to spend time to get into that rhythm. Some of you may have experienced the wonderful work of Punch Drunk, including their installation for Manchester's International Festival, It Felt Like a Kiss, which drew people through a building to contextualise and experience a film at the heart of it, which the BBC actually showed. Punchdrunk also collaborated with English National Opera in Docklands to stage their new opera on the Duchess of Malthy, set around a building which required not only the audience to move around, but the orchestra too. At the Barbican, among our many experiments inside and outside the centre in recent times, we've taken that approach to the very limit with the prize-winning show You Me, Bum Bum Train, put on as part of the Create Festival in a disused office block in Bethnal Green, praised even by the Daily Telegraph as one of the hottest shows of last year. Here, there were 200 performers involved around the building, but only one audience member at a time. You were taken into a dramatic scenario in which you had to participate and play a part, then dizzyingly taken in a wheelchair to the next scenario and so on. A literally unique encounter. What's all this telling us? It is, I think, that the idea of participation in the arts is changing. There'll always be the place for active, engaged listening, whether to a Shakespeare tragedy or to a Mahler symphony, but there are other ways to be fully involved. I always remember the first experiment we did at the proms to bring the wealth of young people's music making into the hall. Of course we'd had many youth orchestras, youth ensembles, playing other people's music. But then we set up a project where young players in five centres around the country were able to make their own music come to London to rehearse for a week together, and then play together for a televised concert in the arena of the Albert Hall, something they had actually made themselves, and that was electrifying. And this is something now that many arts organizations are building into the very center of their lives. Sage Gateshead is a very good example, integrating education, outreach, and learning into all their arts programming. And at the Barbican, we've established a new department of creative learning, bringing together the Barbican with the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, creating pathways for young people and involvement in much of what we offer. So if you think even for a minute about the way that technology can facilitate that sort of collaboration and involvement, you can immediately see how exciting the possibilities are. The received idea that technology would make us close in on ourselves, access all our music through one-to-one headphones, and use the internet to avoid communication, has turned out to be, like people's fears about radio and television in the past, totally misconceived. It's created vivid new networks, we use Facebook to keep in touch with many more people than ever before, Twitter to react instantly, and so on. Rather than reducing communality and interaction, technology has powerfully aided us. And that's what I'm sure the thrust of digital involvement in the arts should focus on. Making those connections, facilitating that participation and conversation on an ever-widening scale. Indeed, the scale is potentially limitless and it's how you refine it down that is one of the challenges. From big screens for live events, from cinema showings of NT Live and the Met Opera, there's a huge opportunity. Watching John Adams's Nixon in China from the Met recently in a cinema, I was struck by actually how much more immediate and gripping experience it was than actually sitting at the back of the Metropolitan Opera, a huge barn of a place. Then there are the many ways that digital can be built into live events, like the fantastic Bill Viola videos of Wagner's Tristan, seen on the South Bank or the seven hours of Shakespeare in Dutch that we presented at the Barbican, where the audience could watch the whole thing on screens as well as live, could move around through the proceedings, could come up to the stage and sit on sofas to be part of the show, all facilitated by the digital presence of the whole thing. There is one downside which we all know too well, and that is that along all the good things out there in the digital space, there is a load of dross and worse. How do people choose? You could spend your life watching YouTube getting pulled deeper and deeper into the mind-boggling range of what's on offer. How do people find what they want? How do they navigate it? What will they want? How will we know what they want? and how on earth will they find what they want, even if it is there? These are the questions which we're all grappling with, and it's so easy, as anybody in an arts organization knows, to invest hundreds of thousands of pounds in all this activity without seeing any return on the investment, rather like the early days of the web where every organization and every one of my tiny BBC Radio 3 programs had to have its own lavish and beautifully crafted website that no one knew existed. And surely this is where the BBC, the Arts Council and the the organisations can begin to play a role in providing navigation. In the past, it was a historic achievement of the BBC to be a trusted guide to the best of what was available by bringing it to their broadcast networks. Now, without that top-down feel, in a very different world where we're not constrained by broadcast networks and people want to choose for themselves, can we reinterpret this sense of a reliable guide, a trusted brand that will be all the more necessary for audiences? We need to be able to test this process step by step, which is surely where this partnership is so valuable. If we're to be serious about digital engagement, it is just as important as live personal engagement, and it needs to be nurtured with the same care. We can use digital to enhance our marketing, but is it just marketing? No, it is more than that. Is it just added value to the live offer? Surely it's more than that too. For if we're to create digital communities, there must be real thinking about what works digitally and what doesn't not simply an assumption that one will translate into the other. How do we enrich the audience experience and think of this at the beginning of a project, not just as an add-on at the end? What are we trying to reach, given that digitally the world is your oyster? Is that the way to build a worldwide brand? And then finally, and critically, in an age of austerity and declining resources, what will people pay for? This is a big question for the BBC, uh, and as we're here at the home of The Guardian, perhaps we shouldn't say too loudly what a huge problem the free offer of the national press on the internet created for that industry, driven by the idea that they were doing innovative marketing and how hard it now is them to row back from that and, as it were, monetarise the offer. Is pay-per-view the way to go for the arts? Not sure at all. It's very fussy, not in tune with the bundled offers that most broadcasters deal with. At the Barbican, we're contemplating a digital membership to sit alongside our various membership schemes which could offer a range of content especially for that subscription. Then you're into what Anne was raising, rights issues, content capture, and that other myriad of issues. But let me just uh, wind up on an optimistic note this is a watershed for us Uh, It is totally in tune with the spirit of the times. It opens the way, as Will said, to profound collaborations and partnerships. And if we can be sufficiently undefensive about our own institutions and really respond to what audiences want by collaborating, it's potentially the biggest breakthrough for the arts in reaching new audiences, connecting with new communities and, very important point now, I think, releasing infinitely more value for the public money that is invested in us all. We mustn't miss that opportunity.